Welcome to the Fighting for Joy podcast. I'm your host, Jody Blick. Life in this world of ours is such a both and. I say that all the time because it can be so beautiful and wonderful, and it can be so disappointing and confusing and hard, sometimes all at the same time. Pretty much everyone will at some point experience a difficult season and find themselves struggling through a time of discouragement or loneliness, betrayal, anxiety, sadness, grief, and the list goes on and on. Sometimes it just isn't easy to persevere through. So I started this podcast to remind us all that even in the midst of the mess, there is hope to be found. We can help each other fight for joy and encourage one another to keep pressing forward in hope. And season two is all about how to do that. Most of the tools that I've been having my guests highlight are tools that I do implement into my own fight for joy as well. And today is no exception. My guest today is Chris Hewerts, and among the many other hats that he wears, Chris is an Enneagram teacher and coach. I wanted to highlight this tool in particular because of how helpful it has been to me in grief. Um, one of the most frequent questions that um, both Eric and I get is what has helped you to make progress in your grief? Because as people have watched our journey and have walked with us, um, they see that we are making headway. We keep moving forward, albeit imperfectly, and it's often mixed with a step backwards here and there. Um, but by God's grace, we do continue to experience further aspects of healing and lots of growth um, through the continued pain and sadness that we actually still feel every day. Um, now, I realize that for some of you, this may be the very first time that you've ever heard the word Enneagram, and it's fairly still you know, new to me too. But as I've learned about it and therefore learned more about myself and others, it really has become helpful to me in my life, especially in um, relationship to my grief. Um, so as I've been preparing for this interview with Chris and just kind of reflecting on my personal Enneagram journey these last couple of years, um, three main things came to my mind in regards to why and how it has been beneficial for me personally. And I thought I would just share that quickly here in the intro. First of all, um, it's really pushed me to have more compassion towards myself, especially in recognizing my tendencies in stressful times and what I'm prone to when life is hard. Oftentimes, um, we can wonder, you know, why am I responding like this? Or why did I react that way? Why is this bothering me and it doesn't seem to be bothering anybody else? Um, and so learning about my specific dominant type has caused me to better discern how I become discouraged and the lies that I am tempted to believe when I'm struggling. Uh, the first book that I read on the Enneagram was called The Road Back to You, and it was a great help as I learned uh, really to grow in my appreciation for my strengths and the things that I contribute to the world and to my relationships, both in happy, happy times and difficult times. I've just been kinder to myself and, and actually more grateful to God for the ways that he has uniquely designed me. And I also just have felt more motivated to mature and develop and transform into more Christ-like ways. Secondly, I've grown tremendously in understanding and in compassion towards others. I've been especially grateful for this and, and thankful for the insight that the Enneagram has provided into the various ways that even each of us living here in the Blick House um, might tend to process and deal with heartache and pain because all five of us lost Jackson, but each of us have had a markedly different journey in grief these last six years. 
I've also found myself better able to extend grace and patience to the people around us who have wanted to walk with us in our sorrow. Um, Well, and actually, you know, honestly, towards those who haven't too. But as I better understand why different people are responding in different ways, I can better appreciate what they are bringing to the table and then look to them for help and friendship in the natural ways that they are wired and appreciate their strengths and their perspective and learn to let go of expectations that just might be unrealistic for the way that God has uniquely created them. And lastly, the Enneagram has given me such a bigger picture of God, his creation, his glory, his holiness, and his greatness is just powerfully reflected in the special and unique ways that he has created and wired each one of us, and then the personal ways that he meets us and loves us. So all this being said, not every tool that I share on this podcast will connect with every person. And that is the whole point of why I'm trying to share diverse guests with different perspectives and different ideas and different tools. So no worries if this one isn't for you, if it doesn't resonate with you. But if it does, I do pray that you'll be helped by adding another practical tool into your life to help you keep fighting for joy. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Thanks so much for including me. Oh, thanks so much for doing this with me. And I'm just, I'm really honored to have this time with you and thankful that I can bring your insight and your wisdom to my listeners. Um, well, let's just jump right in by having you introduce yourself and a little bit about your life there in Omaha. Sure. So I, um, I'm a little nonprofit here. I'm called Gravity. And this is um, really the kind of outcome of having spent 20 years in international humanitarian work. My wife and I were part of an organization um, that had projects in, in, in 15 cities around the world that um, was helping little kids who had been trafficked um, into um, the commercial sex industry find freedom, little kids who had been impact, impacted by the global AIDS pandemic to find family, and uh, little kids who lived and, and worked on the streets or in sewers, refugee camps, and in some communities. And uh, mm-hmm. after 20 years of that, you can imagine it took its toll. It's difficult mm-hmm. and, and painful. And um, I was, for the last few years of, of my work there, sort of teetering on the edge of burnout mm-hmm. and um, hit some walls pretty hard and needed needed a, a reset. Mm-hmm. So the work that we're doing really is to help humanitarians, activists, folks who want to build a better world and, and think that building a better world needs to come from a place of rooted and grounded spirituality. And so we teach meditation, mindfulness, and, and contemplative practice as a way of, of supporting that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have so many interesting facets to your life. I know that's what draws so many people to you. Um, but today I really want to focus in on your work with the Enneagram. Um, I feel like I'm still pretty new to the Enneagram. I was introduced to it uh, just a few years ago through some podcasts and then to you specifically through your book, uh, The Sacred Enneagram, which uh, then led me to attend one of your Enneagram workshops in Omaha. I went to the one in April of 2018. Um, But out of all of the, the different voices and teachers that I have heard in this space now, um, I just feel like yours is different. It's one of such tenderness and grace and peace, and you've just taught me a lot. So thank you for being here, and um, I'm excited to hear you share a little bit about the Enneagram. Um, I think a lot of my listeners will probably be somewhat familiar with it already, but can you give a quick summary or introduction to get us started? How do you you usually explain what the Enneagram is and what it can teach us? Sure. So I... um... I like to describe the Enneagram as 
and, and specifically the Enneagram of personality um, as our ego set of coping addictions that we've wrapped up around a, a so-called childhood wound so that we don't have to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are. Mm. And, and you see, the, the problem is, is most of us don't know that we don't know who we are, mm. but most of us spend quite a bit of time sort of polishing this projection of our own sort of ego mythology and, and convincing ourselves that, that that may be it and then trying to convince others that that's who we want to be seen as. Hmm. So what happens here is you, you, you take this sort of lifelong project of, of developing personality, developing these, these coping addictions, developing really the skill set of who, who we are and how we present ourselves to the world. And, and then we sort of stay stuck in it. And, and in staying stuck in it, what happens tragically is we lose contact with our essence or mm-hmm. where I kind of frame as our soul's created purpose for being. So you, you, you take all of that and, and, and with the Enneagram, you map it around this diagram, this, this circle with nine points that are equal distance from one another that represent the nine, let's say, archetypes for human character structure. And these archetypes um, really are a story, a story of losing contact with our truest self, our essence, the story of, of, of how we get lost in, in that disconnect from essence and then the story of how we stay lost. And it doesn't have to be that way, actually. We actually can find our way back home and actually this, this story can end well if we, we choose for it to. Hmm. I love that, find our way back home. Um, I know it's not true for everybody, but when I think of home, I mean, I think of being known, being at peace, being myself. Um, so I love that. I love that idea of, of going back home through learning the Enneagram and the stories of what we've been telling ourselves who we are. And I've heard you say, too, it's almost like a mask that we wear. Is that a phrase that you use, too? Yeah. Um, so, of course, personality comes from the English word for personality comes from from the word for, for from persona, which is a word for mask. Mm-hmm. And um, I would say that I, I, I think that our personalities um, is the mass that we cover our essence up with. And so we're actually hiding the, the truest, most beautiful part of ourselves um, from ourselves and each other by, by developing personality. Mm. So in the Enneagram, that, that kind of personality, as it's presented, becomes what's called your, your type. And there's, like I said, nine, nine types. There's nine masks. There's nine ways that, that we suffer our loss of contact from essence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's and it's inevitable. We're we're human. We're going to have this. Like one of my teachers, Russ Hudson, says this all the time. You you have a type, but you're not your type, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's something that we get to make peace with. It's something that we get to learn to have an honest relationship with. And it's something that we learn to, to hold with compassion um, and levity, because in a sense, we have to mm-hmm. have a sense of humor about these parts of ourselves right. that sort of keep us trapped and and, and and keep us stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you know, this podcast is called Fighting for Joy, and it did develop um, out of my own struggle really to, to find joy after our son Jackson passed away. And because of what we've walked through, um, we've just become more aware of the fact that we don't have a corner on the market in grief or trauma or deep lament. And, you know, even though what we've gone through and are still going through is is just horrible, it's really opened our eyes to hurting people. Um, all around me in ways that I just hadn't seen before. And it just seems that everybody's going to have um, a time in their life when they're going to struggle to find joy and to keep pressing on through the brokenness of this world. So um, this podcast is here to remind people that, yes, life in this broken world can be really hard, but there is hope to be found. And 
Um, and it's possible to experience joy not only when we kind of round the corner or when our circumstances are better, but even in the midst of our challenges. And so here in, in season two of this podcast, um, I'm having my guests um, share practical tools that can help with this fight for joy. Um, so I'm excited to kind of think through how the Enneagram might be one of those tools. Um, you mentioned that there are nine main types. Can you just walk us quickly through each of the numbers? Sure. So um, if you set up point one, um, this is the, you know, traditionally classically how my first teacher, Father Richard Gore, taught me this. This is the need to be perfect. Um, the names that have been given to it by the Enneagram Institute or the, the narrative tradition are, are sometimes the perfectionist or the reformer. This is an individual who's highly principled, who's responsible, who has a, a real high standard for themselves. And because they set that high standard for themselves, um, they suffer. They suffer. It's mm -hmm. it's almost unrealistic. They're, they're, they're better than they need to be. And, and, and sadly, this comes from their basic fear, which is that they are somehow in, inherently corrupt. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, if you know ones, they're, they're some of the most principled people out there. <laughs> there's, there's almost nothing corrupt about them. And so you can even see from the very beginning, even looking at this first type, that we, in a sense, become the source of our own pain. And in a sense, we create our own suffering based on the, the, the way that we unfairly and, let's say, unjustly task ourselves to be what we, we never were designed to be. Mm -hmm. So type two is, is um, the need to be needed, sometimes called the helper, the giver. This is um, real nurturing energy, the embrace, the, the sort of lover of the Enneagram. These are the folks who take care of everybody better than they take care of themselves. And they're the folks who know what people need before they even need it. There's a, a warmth here and there's a heart forwardness here. And, and there's a real sensitivity to, to everything um, that, that is in their environment that is an unmet need. And, and the type two perceives that they are to be the solution to having um, all of the needs of those that they care for met. And so this happens at their expense. They, they, they deny what they want. They, they, they suppress and repress their own desires. And, mm -hmm. and they think that this is how they present as, as loving in the world. Because really that's their basic desire is to be aligned with, with love. Mm -hmm. Type three is sometimes called the performer or achiever. This is classically the need to succeed, but I, I think that's a little bit unfair for threes because it's not that threes are the most ambitious or success driven. It's maybe that threes are the most obvious about the mm -hmm. way they go about getting the love that they want, right? So as little kids, um, there's something in them, a kind of hollowness, a kind of longing in their heart center that they wanted to fill. And rather than aligning with love and, and receiving something that could never be earned, they chase down recognition, affirmation, attention, reward, and then chasing these things down allowed for that to become a proxy or a substitute for love. But they're, they're smarter than that, and they know that that's not true love, and, and, and though that created, let's say, the muscle memory and the rails for how they presented in the world, um, they also kind of long for real substance, for authenticity. And so threes are a source of truth in the world. They're a source of hope in the world. Um, they're, they're, they, they add and ascribe value to everything that they, they, they connect with, every relationship they're a part of, everything that they give themselves to. And this is because, in a sense, they feel like as they project and add and ascribe value in their environments, um, they're making themselves more valuable. And the more valuable they become, the more lovable they'll be. Hmm. And so, so you see at point three, they're really kind of exposed for all of us the nine ways. 
the nine different ways that we try to get love, mm-hmm. try to earn love, try to demand that we're loved, try to sort of secure love. And, and, and I think what the Enneagram in the end kind of exposes us to is, like I said, you cannot earn something that's always been ascribed. You learn to align yourself with it. So, so type four, this is classically been called the, um, the romantic, the tragic romantic, the individualist. This is the need to be unique. This is the person who sees beauty in everything and creates beauty all around them as, as really the projection of the fear that they don't know who they are. And in fact, they're afraid they're not as beautiful as all the significance they see in the world. And so there's a lot of ache and this is sometimes the, the the most sort of heart suffering of the types right it's mm-hmm. it's unfair to call them dramatic because it's not that they are overly dramatic it's that they're so in touch with their emotions and particularly the emotions that, that pull on the sadness in their their hearts that pull on this sort of sense of longing but they get lost in that and they get stuck in that and so they isolate and in isolation um try to find out who they are but you you see, we, we, we can't know who we are apart from our relationships. Mm. So, mm. again, you see how this is kind of a, a self-made yeah. trap. Yeah. Um, type 5 is, is sometimes called the, the, the investigator or the observer. And in Spanish, I love it. They call this the theorist. This is the need to mm. understand. Mm. This is the, the, the person who goes up into their minds to suss out, figure out, theorize, and analyze everything. And so... Also, like the four, one of the most boundaried and isolated types, um, they they self-isolate in a sense to, 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 to forecast, to forecast solutions for, for the, the community, their, their, their professional life, their, their intimate relationships, their fam- family, forecast the solutions to the most pressing and urgent uh, issues that, that go unanswered. Um, they're, they're, there's a kind of brilliance about them and, and what's interesting about the fives is is though they love learning um they don't always need teachers in fact teachers kind of slow (laughs) slow them down Mm -hmm. um type six is sometimes called the loyalist or or the skeptic this is the need to be secure and and they take that forecasting energy from point five and and they bring it into threat forecasting so six is our contingency planners worst case scenario thinkers they're always looking out for what could go wrong in a sense they're the true guardians of the enneagram and and they do this to establish the stability that they want as an extension of of how they love and how they want to be loved in the world but they're 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 highly attuned and 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 can be incredibly sensitive and 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 like i said very very cautious and and very concerned about what, what what may not turn out well Type seven is, is sometimes called the enthusiast. This is the need to avoid pain. These are the folks who are sort of up and out, perpetually curious, on the go. They're 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 fascinating. They're funny. They're 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 their minds are, are are probably the fastest moving of all the nine types. Hmm. Incredible problem solvers. Um, but you see what they're they're chronically trying to solve here is 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 the adventure ing, or the moving out of pressing into the pain in their own heart, and so they chronically overdo everything that brings them pleasure as a means of avoiding or not being true with their self or their pain. Mm. Um, the um, eight is, is sometimes called the challenger. Um, this is the need to be against. These are the folks who hate bullies, even though they're, they're usually the biggest bully. Um, these are the impulsive dominant sort of initiating types of the Enneagram. They, 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 they love conflict as a way of building trust and, 
really sort of establishing their sense of control in their environments. Um, they're kind of larger than life people and, and can be intimidating, but you see this is simply an act. They're, they're, they're actually trying to protect an inner child, a, a vulnerable part of themselves that, that had to grow up too quickly. And rather than being honest about that, they, um, they sort of fight with themselves and, and ultimately perfect that as the pattern of, of fighting with their environments. And then finally, you have type nine. This is the um, mediator, the peacemaker. This is the need to avoid. And, and this is the person who, who really understands everyone else's positions and opinions better than they understand their own. This is the person who really is trying to harmonize their, their world by, by stitching together and, and bringing together um, the, the most diverse opinions, positions, kinds of people. But again, it's a, it's a projection, right? This, this exterior sort of peaceful sort of real sort of stabilizing energy that, that comes from them is, 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 is how they distract themselves from not contending with or dealing with the um, inner fragmentation and, and the real lack of, of peace that's going on in their own minds and, and hearts. Yeah, that's super, super helpful, Chris. Thank you. And, you know, just how do you usually encourage people to begin discovering which type they are more dominant in? I mean, you just shared a lot of the fundamental needs and fears. Is that kind of where you start is just kind of seeing which one resonates with with someone? Or how does one go about determining where they're more dominant? Yeah, so there's there's lots of different ways that you can try to discover type. Um, I think in 2020, the, the, the most common is to um, find a test online. And of course, there's lots of free ones out there, but there's lots and lots of bad ones out there. Yeah, yeah. And so I usually encourage folks to, to pay the $12 and, and take the Enneagram Institute's RETI test. I think it's probably the best one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that generally will, will help a lot of people discern type, but you, you know this, uh, all tests come with them, mm-hmm. inherent racial and, and cultural and even type bias Mm -hmm. and um you know that people are smart enough to test the tests you know that people sometimes are honest with how they answer rather lots of us would like to be seen as as someone else and um so the tests can lead to as much confusion as they offer clarity so another way to to get there is through typing interviews with with somebody who's been trained in that um, or somebody who's been really working with themselves in their enneagram type for several years and has has the credibility of that kind of self-awareness yeah. and then third you know there's workshops and trainings and and there's um a particular school in the enneagram community that uses something called panels where they'll bring you know a number of people of the same type up in front of a room and and, and kind of interview let's say all the type ones or the type twos or the type threes to kind of show people in the room like hey there's tons of differences in how we intergate and and interact and engage with this energy in us but there's some pretty common threads that are consistent with folks of a type and when you see it on a panel it's it's one way to sort of try to see it in yourself yeah no that makes that makes a lot of sense um yeah so i'm curious you know if each number has its own fundamental need and and kind of a fundamental fear almost do you think that each number or type in the Enneagram then would have a specific area in which they might be tempted to fall into despair. Does that make sense? Or like, is it possible to, to quick, th- you know, go through each of the nine types and talk about how they might be robbed of joy? Or are you saying that if, if their fundamental need isn't met or their fear, they're giving into their fear, that's where they're going to lose joy? Well, I, I, um, I mean, I think you could take a joy 
overlay and and sort of see how the nine types relate to joy or, or attempt to to um sort of secure it for themselves but I, I think these these fears are less about our our, our notions of, of 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 joy or happiness or inner contentment as and maybe a little bit more of the fear that i'm never going to be my true self again i'm never going to find my way back home i'm never going to be innocent or free or loved or safe again like i once knew i was in my infancy when i was perfect and 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 and, and really mm-hmm. um as close to the divine as as i'll ever ever know mm-hmm. and so that that basic fear is 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 more i'm stuck i'm stuck in the the pain i'm stuck in the suffering i'm stuck in this human condition and um what is evidenced then of this fear is what's called the enneagrams passions and fixations there's this emotional ache and there's this mental sort of obsession that kind of become reinforcing confirmation bias of the of of themselves they they kind of become a hamster wheel where you stay stuck in and and you see if that's how we contend with and cope with our fear then then what we're we're failing to do here is to return to our divine mind our in the enneagram what you could call your your holy idea which is the first truth that we have to tell ourselves that we are free we are loved we are safe um we 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 will be okay we are innocent um mm-hmm. we are good what whatever that might be and um mm-hmm. like i said we spend our entire lives trying to convince ourselves otherwise we spend our entire lives sort of fortifying our our fixated stuckness and and our conditioned personalities mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well the enneagram you know it came into my life during a really crucial time like i said it was just a couple years into grief and kind of still fumbling around with what our life would look like on this side of death. And I think it's pretty interesting that my journey started during grief. I kind of think it's related. Mm. Um, I don't even know if I would have been as open to it before that. Um, but I'm, mm. I'm super thankful. And it has personally been a tool for me um, in my fight for joy in grief, especially. Um, and it didn't, it didn't take long for me to realize that I was dominant in type nine. Um, mm. But I constantly find myself resonating with type six, which makes sense, right? <laughs> with the timing and me being in grief, um, because that would be the number that I would go to in stress. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that aspect of the Enneagram. A lot of my listeners have found me because they're in the midst of really hard things. Um, they're trying to figure out how do I fight for joy in the midst of really um, broken situations and things. And so um, when somebody, you know, when trauma hits and somebody's going through a really difficult stretch in life, how how is their enneagram dominance affected, and how does how, how does knowing this help with the overall path back back to God? Sure. So, um, so I think what you're you're you're, you're kind of referencing here. Um, and, and, and maybe when you started that connection from type nine to six is, um, if you look at the Enneagram as it's drawn out, this, this symbol, there are these crisscrossing lines inside the circle. And, um, I would say if you're Enneagram fluent at all, that if you've ever come across this teaching or or read anything that you've heard that these lines speak to what is sometimes called integration or disintegration Mm -hmm. or your stress point or your heart point. And, um, that's kind of, I think, the sort of first step for most of us. Now, unfortunately, most people in the professional community don't believe in uh, integration or disintegration theory. Um, in fact, the person who came up with it later on 
even dismissed it and said it's hmm. never meant that. But what you, you see here is if, you know, if you're dominant in type nine, that you do have a connection to three and you do have a connection to six. And um, my sense is, you know, you've been able to access both the probable um, gifts of type three and type six, and you've probably been able to access some of the, the more um, unflattering aspects or, or manipulation tactics of each of these numbers. Mm -hmm. um, they're important because what you see at point nine is there, there's a tendency to live on the surface of your own reality that a lot of folks who are dominant type nine actually won't burrow into their own souls. They won't be honest with their own grief or, 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 or pain. They won't be honest with their own joy or they won't be honest with what they really want or need in life. And, and they'll actually give themselves away and, and let other people's needs and wants sort of be the driver and the dictator. So point nine, if, if that's where you stay, and if you stay on the surface of your own experience, you, you lose a lot of yourself and, and you lose a lot of um, the mystery of who you are. And so what you get to do there is to reach to, to point six and then reach into point six, you, you move from this sort of bubble of your, of your felt experience into a, a reflection of what it means to mm. be yourself. I like that. And moving into your head can actually be for your integration and for your wholeness. It can actually lead to a lot of mindfulness, um, a lot of awareness, a lot of self-observation. But if it's ungrounded, it can also lead to a lot of anxiety. And, and that anxiety may be irrational. That anxiety may lead to a lot of panicky behaviors or, 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 or malformed renderings of the truth. Um, at mm. point nine, you, you also have that reach to three and that reach to three, um, is a reach into your heart. And, and so rather than living on the surface of your experience, you move into your heart at point three and, and you see what your heart has to tell you about yourself and about life and about what it means to experience the fullness and the richness of life. Mm. Well, point three, you can also lose part of that. And then point three, you can also, um, learn to live on the experience of your own heart where you don't go there, where you still don't love yourself deeply. Um, and where you maybe kind of use that reach to three as a kind of emotional pacifier to, to continue to stay in, in that fixated state. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's a flow there mm -hmm. and that flow sort of keeps, um, keeps you moving in, in some ways that are really helpful, but it simultaneously helps keep you stuck where, where yeah. you need maybe be jarred loose from some stuff yeah 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 well and i'm i'm just really grateful for the timing of this journey too because um i think it has helped me to be a little more connected with myself and with others um and to and even just connected with my pain and my grief so that i could mm -hmm. accept god's comfort and i could accept you know the peace that um that was there to be found um i i just think too that um it's helped me to be patient with others <laughs> in grief. Um, I mean, every member of our family, of course, has responded differently to our loss. But I also found myself just able to better extend grace to friends and to people in my life as they responded to my grief and tried to walk with me in my pain. And I just feel like the Enneagram was such a helpful, helpful tool for me in just developing compassion um, in the midst of that, both towards myself and towards others. Um, I've heard that compassion in your voice too, when I've heard you interviewed or when I, um, was under your teaching at that workshop. Um, can you just share a little bit about how the Enneagram can make us more compassionate people, both towards ourselves and others? Sure. So 
the challenge here is, is, is it's often easier, or this is what we think. It's often easier to have compassion for someone else than it is to have it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, and you know this, that we can only love someone else as far as we learn to love ourselves. And, and so this is really the challenge here. Like the Enneagram can show you the ways that you stay stuck. It can show you the ways that you stay deluded. It can show you the ways that you, you fortify your fears. But the Enneagram can also show you the ways where you can learn to accept the fragmented bits of yourself. And so I, I fundamentally believe this, that if there, if there's any aspect of ourselves that we don't allow to belong, then the truth is there's no part of ourselves fully belongs. And this is where it starts, this commitment to belonging, to, to loving ourselves well so that we can love those in our hmm. environments. And, and, and I think if the Enneagram does not lead to radical self-acceptance, then there can't be compassion in it. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, and I, and I think this is true. I think that this is the hard work that if we can learn to hold ourselves with, with true love, if we can learn to accept ourselves. Then, then this teaching, um, has the, the potential to, to be revolutionary. Now I, I want to also sort of temper that in, in saying this, that, the Enneagram doesn't change everything. It's, mm-hmm. it's simply a support to our ongoing journeys. And, and this is a bummer because I think everybody's looking for the one thing that will change everything. Right, right. But nothing, nothing actually changes everything. Even religious conversion doesn't change everything. Mm-hmm. This is why lots of us grew up in churches of people who changed their minds about their beliefs, but were maybe still racist or, or still don't recycle. Like, I, I, I think you have to understand that as you approach the, the, the teaching and tradition here, that it really is a support to um, compassionate self-acceptance. And, and that actually then becomes, you know, the, the, the first step to radical acceptance and compassion for, for those in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think along with compassion, too, one of the other things I think it's helped me with is just contemplation and just you know, one of the things that really resonates with me is, is your teaching on kind of turning things down, right? Embracing more quiet and, and stillness. Um, does that resonate with me more just because I'm dominant in type nine? Or is that something that should resonate with every type? Or how does the Enneagram tie into or lead into um, a more contemplative lifestyle? Well, I, so in, in my book, The Sacred Enneagram, I, I try to align each of the nine types with some mindfulness and interior mm-hmm. practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes, for the nine, um, I would say that the, the, the soul work, the inner work, the, the, the way of nurturing spirituality is to actually engage and, and, and really embrace a kind of a embodied stillness. Now, the bummer for nines is they're generally the most chilled out, the most relaxed, the most dialed back anyway. And so what I'm not saying is that's good for you. In fact, that's one of the ways that nines sort of put themselves to sleep and, mm-hmm. and kind of numb out on what's important in life. So what I'm I'm trying to get at here is this sort of interior posture of embracing a kind of alertness that brings your self-awareness or your attention to the parts of yourself that have fallen asleep. And, 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 and rather than sort of in the business busyness of your mind sort of justifying let's say further sort of self-forgetting it's learning to be alone and find your power hmm. it's learning to be still and access your anger and, and letting your anger tell you the truth 
So your book is called The Sacred Enneagram. Um, how would you define sacred and why did you, why'd you choose that word for your title? Well, so I, um, so the challenge here is not that I, in the book, am suggesting the Enneagram itself is sacred. Um, it's, it, it very well could be. That's, that's, not, that's not the point. Um, what I was trying to get at was that if there were four Enneagons, and these are the original building blocks of the Enneagram of personality, so this Enneagram or Enneagon of holy ideas, the Enneagram of fixations, the Enneagram of virtues, and the Enneagram of passions, and if those first four were actually part of a larger tradition, 108 Enneagrams, um, then I wanted to, to not add to that, but just to say, look, if, if you do take a mindfulness intention mm -hmm. and a contemplative practice and you wrap those around the circle, um, that becomes the sacred Enneagram. That becomes another way of reading what mm -hmm. this, this diagram is teaching us. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. the, the titling was kind of a, a technical titling of um, if you know what your Enneagram type is and you want to use it for spiritual formation, there's a way to see that actually mm -hmm. mapping mm -hmm. to into the symbol itself. Yeah. Yeah. The journey can feel really sacred too. And, you know, yeah. one way it's felt really sacred to me is just um, learning about the Enneagram has actually helped me to learn more about God, right? Like how mm -hmm. kind he is to meet each one of us in the specific way that we're uniquely wired and created. It just, for me, um, I've learned more about just what a personal and tender and loving God he is who continually draws us all back to himself um, in unique ways. Um, so we went through the ways that each, you know, kind of talked about how each of the types uh, might be tempted to fall into despair or lose joy. But let's just kind of circle back and talk about specific ways that we might be able to better fight for joy, knowing the Enneagram or, you know, you kind of mentioned going back to truth and kind of getting ourselves back to truth. Um, are there specific um, promises of God that jump out at you or would that be different for each number or just what's something to work on in pursuing joy, um, knowing within the, the, um, the Enneagram. Sure. I mean, if, um, again, if you, you started at point one, um, I imagine like the, the path to joy here is, is, is to learning to make peace with your flaws and, mm -hmm. and to learning to realize that, that we are, are, are perfectly, um, human for the good and the bad. That point two, we are, um, we are rooted in joy when we allow ourselves to be loved. Um, at point three, sorry, <laughs> somebody's okay. getting in here. At point three, that we um, don't have to earn that love, that the joy is in, in abiding in it. At point four, um, we are learning to um, um, find the beauty in ourselves and, and know that it doesn't come from anywhere outside of ourselves. Um, at point five, it is in learning to rest with, with mystery um, and being okay with not knowing at six. It's realizing that, um, that we can do nothing to make ourselves more secure than just be who we are at seven. It's realizing that most of the ways that we've, we've pursued joy has been a distraction, that actually the pain in our heart will tell us the truth about that. At eight, it's learning to, to make peace with our vulnerability and remembering our innocence. And at nine, it's taking our power back. Hmm. And it's hmm. actually letting ourselves be um, the center of our own stories and not giving that away and not losing more of ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, I think a lot of our life is lived in kind of this both and, right? The reality that we can we can be experiencing two seemingly parallel things at once, things like sorrow and joy or peace and pain or brokenness and growth. And I've seen that in the Enneagram too, right? Like it just, it allows for the acknowledgement of our struggles and it brings hope and an invitation towards transformation. Um, I know you've seen real, real suffering. Um, like you said, your work has taken you into slums, into poverty, into AIDS communities. Um, I've heard you share about sitting with people as they, you know, take their last breath and, and um, carrying bodies out of Mother Teresa's house of dying. And I'm sure you've gone through difficult stuff in your personal life too. So um, just kind of as we kind of near the end here of our conversation, will you just kind of reiterate, reiterate one more time how you see the Enneagram being used to help find peace and restore joy when somebody is in the middle of something really hard? Yeah, I um, like I said, I, I think what you'll you'll learn when you you become sort of familiar and fluent with with the, the structure of your enneagram type is is the ways that you don't tell yourself the truth about who you are, the ways that you don't tell yourself the truth about what you need, the ways that you you continue to lie to yourself about um, your memory of, of 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 what connection to peace and source is. Hmm. And so I, I think if anything, um, the Enneagram is that, right? This is what Gurdjieff, the man who, who brought it forward a um, hundred years ago, taught that this is a teaching about remembrance and remembering and remembering the fragmented and disconnected and isolated aspects of self that are the source of, of or in a large part, the source of much of our suffering. I think when you can remember your soul's creative purpose for being and you can align with that, certainly there is, is joy to be found in that. But we also know this, that um, love does not come without suffering. And, uh, and that there's also something, I think, ex existentially true in what suffering teaches us um, about ourselves. And I think when you bring the Enneagram as a lens to look through all of that and to try to understand all of that, you, you see then where as a source of our own unnecessary suffering, the Enneagram frees us into the suffering that I think is inevitably one of the fruits of love and, mm. and makes, makes us more human. Yeah. Well, besides the Enneagram, what other tools do you use um, just in your own personal life? Like if you are struggling, you're despondent, you're discouraged, um, what are some things that you do in your own personal fight for joy? Yeah, I um, really have over the, the last several years um tried to make a, a deep commitment to my mindfulness and meditation practices and so there are breath practices and and, and there are practices like a loving kindness meditation um that are, are constant sort of reminders and anchors to return to um a more centered centered version of myself when i feel like i'm, I'm kind of losing my way mm -hmm. um but these are you know these are undramatic these um are <laughs> right. um sometimes difficult and and you know this with all contemplative practice with all mindfulness and meditation practices that generally the fruit is, is not available in the practice itself um, the fruit is demonstrated and, and shows up in our active lives and so this is patient work and this is work that requires um, a real sort of ongoing commitment to it if you really want to see the, the benefits yeah 
Well, let's wrap up by having you just kind of speak quickly to those listening who are ready for this journey. I know not everybody will be, but for those who are listening and think that the work of the Enneagram is something that they want to begin to explore, what advice What advice do you have for them? How does someone start learning about and diving into the Enneagram? Kind of the yeah, first couple steps? so there's lots of great resources available. Um, there's lots of great books that have, have, have been published um, over the last 30 years, um, 35 years. And, and there's a lot of folks out there offering, I think, good workshops and retreats and, and trainings. But um, I would say um, more than learning the system itself, it, it's really ingesting and metabolizing and incorporating it into your own personal life and working with yourself and your type before you try to put this on anyone else and mm -hmm. try to type the people that you love. Um, I'll say this uh, at the beginning, it, it will be devastating for a lot of people, that it will be humiliating, that it will expose the games that you've played. It will show you the ways that you've given over to your ego. And so you have to approach this with a lot of levity and, and a lot of lightheartedness and, and, and really a sense of humor, learning mm. to, to laugh at yourself for sort of the patterns, the, the addictions, the, the habits, and, and learning to sort of laugh at yourself and, and, and find some levity in this. Um, you, you take the, the power away from them mm -hmm. and you just find a sense of remembering that, yes, uh, over the course of your life, you will actually continue to return to these patterns that these mm -hmm. are hardwired to your character structure. And so they're predictable. And once you realize that they're observable and once you observe them, it, it really leads to, um, I think, some of the keys for, for liberation from them. Yeah. Oh, that's super helpful. Thank you, Chris. So where is the best place for people to find you? Do you have a website for Gravity Center? Yep. So you can go to gravitycenter.com. Um, go to the sacredenneagram.org to find a, a, an updated and running calendar of all the, the workshops and trainings that we do. And uh, we host retreats um, and workshops throughout the year. And so folks are always welcome. Um, our retreat, so in, in eight years, um, and, and we host three a year just outside of Omaha, have all sold out. And mm -hmm. uh, I think our spring retreat is sold out already. But we always have long waiting lists, and we always somehow manage to get a few more people in. So yeah, well, register soon. Yeah, yeah, well worth it, that's for sure. Well, I've been really encouraged today, Chris. Thank you so much. Um, I know this will be really instructive and helpful to everybody that's listening. And like I said at the beginning, you just have such a thoughtful and kind voice out in this world. So keep sharing and um, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks so much for including me. Thank you so much for listening today. If you were helped or encouraged by this episode, please share it with others. I would also love for you to find me on social media. You can connect with me and others who are listening on my Fighting for Joy podcast page on either Facebook or Instagram. You can also send me an email at fightingforjoypodcast at gmail.com. Podcasts have been such a lifeline for me in grief and one of the top ways that my soul is recharged and encouraged on a weekly basis. I truly hope that this podcast will do the same for you. Keep fighting for joy.